Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome back to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner, and I'm joined here by... Hey, it's Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hey. We've got a special guest here today, don't we? Yeah. Tell us. So with us today is Kristen Kaner, and... I will, I'm going to talk about kind of the fancy degree part, but then she's going to give us a little more about who she who she is in um, where she's at in life and in this community. So she got her MTS from Duke Divinity. She's currently working on her PhD from Trinity College at Bristol. So other than the, the, the degrees, tell us a little bit more about you, who you are. Yeah, so... My name's Kristen. I grew up in both Thailand and the U.S. My parents were missionaries. They currently live in Spain, so I've also lived in Spain for a short period of time. So I have a very multicultural, third-culture kid background, if listeners know what that is. Uh, And that's been really influential in my life, really impactful. And combining that with a gift and a passion for studying scripture and studying church history, I'm basically trying to use my scholarship to serve the global church in in every way possible. That's awesome. We're super, super glad that you're here. Werner and Kristen have been working together on this thing called the Ephesians 2 Gospel Project. And so Today, I'm a little bit like at the back of the classroom, (laughs) and I'll raise my hand when there's something I don't understand, but I'm really excited because these guys have been, I mean, this you guys are in like, you're deep in these waters right now because you're in the middle of research and you're in the middle of writing, and discovering these pretty incredible uh, biblical, historical, and cultural truths about Ephesians 2. So I think what we'll do is... Werner, do you want to introduce a little bit more about the project? And then I'll go ahead and read the section that we're going to talk about today. Right, right. So the Ephesians 2 Gospel Project was born out of uh, my own study of Ephesians 2, uh, seeing uh, the honor status reversal in two dimensions uh, in, in Ephesians 2 in, in verses 1 through uh, v- verses one through 6 or 7. You see a vertical a status reversal uh, between uh, between the sinfulness of humans and the uh, the seated above in Christ, uh, you know, part of of our identity in Christ. Uh, in the second part of Ephesians two, which is uh, verses eleven to twenty two, you have a horizontal uh, reconciliation. You have a horizontal status reversal from being outsiders uh, to the people of God, to being members of the family of God, citizens of uh, the kingdom. And that status reversal is real plain. It's horizontal. The reconciliation is very clear between Jew and Gentile. And what's really profound, one of, or one of the things that's really profound is that at the center of this uh, these two dimensions is salvation by grace through faith, verses eight and nine, and these f- four verses or so concerning the cross of Christ. So we have verses thirteen through sixteen that we want to uh, 
just listened to now. And for those who are uh, leaning into this podcast right now, I want you to listen for the horizontal reconciliation that's going on in these verses. So, Carrie, go ahead. Okay. And real quick, before I start reading, we did want to mention that this will be a two-part kind of um expose, if you will, <laughs> of Ephesians 2. And while we can't separate the idea of doing theology and thinking mission, I think this is a little bit more kind of the doing theology. Let's look at this horizontal and vertical explanation of atonement in Ephesians. But then the next part two will be how is that impacted some stories about maybe tribal violence and reconciliation of peoples. And so in my mind, a little bit more of maybe the thinking mission aspect. So I think it's important to just say that there will be two parts. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So we're at Ephesians. We're going to read chapter two, verse 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, thank you, Carrie. I think it's important to keep in mind Paul is specifically, as a Jew, writing to Gentiles. And this is plain from verse 11. Uh, which we didn't read, but he says, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. So he's specifically, as a Jew, writing to Gentiles, and he's talking about horizontal reconciliation. And if if anyone knows uh, about the the general relationship between Jews and Gentiles in first century Palestine, it was a relationship of profound hostility between the clean and the unclean between the insiders and the outsiders, uh, between those who were close to God and those who were far from God. And uh, so so this text uh, is telling us that the cross of Christ is doing something to reconcile Jew and Gentile. And the significance of this is is beyond Jew and Gentile because it it relates to potentially any groups of people in the family of God who are in places of hostility uh, toward each other. So, and before I uh, ask Kristen to to share uh, some of the things that she's been researching, I just want to offer a little bit more background, which, uh, and this is a little bit personal for me too. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a, a German home. My my father and mother were both born in Germany. My father had been a German soldier in World War II, and he became a a uh, prisoner of war for four years, captured by the Allies. And after he was released from prison, came home, and uh, my grandfather brought his uh, three sons and his wife to to America. So I grew up in this German household with a keen awareness of what happened in World War II Germany. And of course, we know there was incredibly evil collective identity conflict that happened in Germany. 
And one of the things that has haunted me is here was Germany with its hundreds of years of of living under the shadow of Martin Luther and the Protestant church and really having a Christianized culture. And yet they became one of the most uh, brutal and evil uh, peoples, if you will, uh, of all time. Of course, we're thinking about the Holocaust and the way they uh, treated the Jews and, and other peoples. So I, I just have grown up with this awareness that there is this collective identity conflict in the world that's really evil and affects lots of people. At the same time, in the church, the way we think about the cross of Christ, it almost exclusively relates to individual salvation. Uh, of course, that is a true part of the gospel, uh, that individuals are reconciled by the cross to God. But here in this text, in Ephesians 2, we're seeing something that uh, of the reconciling work of the cross, which is not about individuals being reconciled to God. It's about groups of people in the family of God reconciled to each other. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, when I look at the world and I see all of this collective identity conflict, whether it's in America or whether it's in a uh, you know, other parts of, of the world, when we consider tribalism and nationalism and racism and ethnocentrism, uh, I thought this is a text of scripture that has profound significance to our world today. And, and so I wanted to explore this text. And one of the things I wanted to do was to uh, examine whether the early church fathers used this text in Ephesians 2 as, as an important way to understand the significance of the cross. Because when we look at evangelical systematic the theologies, uh, popular systematic theology textbooks today, or when we look at the doctrine of the cross, very often this text, even though it has an abundance of of concepts and words about the cross, the blood of Christ, you know, in his flesh, doing things, uh, this text is often not used to describe the work of the atonement of Christ, the work of the cross. So I wanted to know, what do the church fathers have to say about this? And this actually became how I got interested in working with Kristen. So Kristen, can you kind of tell us about how how that worked out, how that happened? Yeah, so uh, I feel like it was the Lord that brought me to the Mission One office initially. It was just a series of events, perfect timing, and clearly the Lord was in it. And just hanging out at the office, um, they so generously offered the space for me to use. I started to talk with Werner about this idea he was hatching, um, that's now the Ephesians 2 Gospel Project. And he was talking about his curiosity about what the early church had to say about this text. And so I actually took a whole class when I was at Duke on the topic of what's called reception history, which basically just means how has a, a certain passage been interpreted throughout history by the church? 
And so I opened up my laptop and I was like, oh, well, have you ever seen this? And you could do this and you could do <laughs> yeah, that. I, res- I particularly remember you showing me this one website called Bibliindex.fr yeah, very clunky or French like website. Yes. <laughs> really difficult, but amazing. <laughs> and what, what is it that you could do with that website? So on Biblindex, for anybody who's as nerdy as I am, it's really <laughs> exciting because you can get in there and you can select a passage or multiple passages of scripture, and then you can limit it by time period. So maybe I only want to see the first 300 years. What did everything that was ever written by anybody in the church that we have on Ephesians 2, 11 through 22? I can limit it like that, and then it will give me, you know, hundreds of references that I can then follow up on and try to find. Hopefully they're not in Latin or Greek because it's a pain <laughs> when they are. Uh, but basically just to see, to get a wide uh, a wide view of what was happening. In our case, we really focused on the first 400 years. And I remember when you first showed me that, Kristen, like I was wide-eyed and amazed that there was actually a way to do this. And uh and and so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if uh, maybe Kristen could uh, help with the research on this project? And, and that's how uh, we started collaborating. Now, were you guys, I mean, this might be maybe our pivot to going back a little bit and talking through maybe some of these earlier writings. But were you guys, have you guys been able to really, as you think through, okay, we know it's overlooked. What about the why it's been overlooked? Because in theory, or else you probably wouldn't have a project at this point. In theory, it has not always been overlooked. Right. Right. So can you kind of maybe rewind a little bit to when it was not overlooked and then where we started to see it maybe phase into understanding and interpreting in a different way? Yeah, I, I think that's why bringing in the church fathers on a project like this is so important yeah. because we're basically bringing in other conversation partners from the body of Christ, not just through space, but even through time. Mm-hmm. And we are allowing them to ask us, why have you ignored this? Mm-hmm. Or why have you thought of it this way and not this way? We're allowing them to question us, to cause us to mm-hmm. think differently about what we're reading, realizing they were in a different time and a different culture and a different context. But, you know, there's also this thing where I think almost any Christian today likes to believe, well, I'm basically, you know, I'm basically like the early church. My church (laughs) does things like the early church did, right? Yeah. Like we like this idea that we are like the early church. Mm -hmm. And yet, especially in the evangelical world, so few of us know much about the early church. Right. We don't know very much about their theology or the situations that they were addressing or how our own theology, our own traditions came about. So that's really it helps us to understand ourselves better. And it helps us to, uh, you know, look at the log in our own eye. Yeah. And I think in the in the first 300 years of the church, the 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 early church was a minority group inside of the Roman Empire, and they were oftentimes persecuted. Mm-hmm. So they were subjects of the empire, if you will. They did not have political power. Uh, the church uh, was often a suffering church. And so their perspective 
on uh, the nature of sin, the nature of salvation, was influenced by their sort of position in 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 the, their social status in in the broader empire in the broader community would you would you say that's uh appropriate kristen yeah yeah definitely they you know they were in a different situation kind of getting into the late 300s is when that situation just barely started to change right so for a long time the church in some places at sometimes faced a lot of persecution, and at other times, not very much. Uh, but those first 400 years were profoundly different from the rest of Western history, where the church had a very prominent, even central place in government, in state, and political power. The other thing about it is, you know, some of the writers that we found were like disciples of the disciples of John, mm. the apostle, right? <laughs> yeah. Disciples wow. of the disciples of Paul. Yeah. So there's a closeness to the writers of the New Testament. Yeah. And you've also even later on in the 200s and 300s, you've got the Greek fathers who the the language of the New Testament is their native language. Yeah. So there's things that they are seeing that they are sensitive to that we could not possibly yeah. be aware of and be sensitive to. Yeah. And, you know, they also lived in a time they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have a lot of things. They had the text yeah. and they spent an immense amount of time memorizing, meditating on getting to know the Bible. Yeah, that's one thing I have found remarkable when I read early church fathers. It really feels like they write out of a, a sense that they have a burden of preservation. Yeah. And so they're very um, clear and studied because they do recognize because of their proximity to the gospel, to the disciples, that they really do feel like this is this is kind of our torch to pass on is preserving this in as pure a form as we know to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And also preserving it. I think the other important thing to understand about that period is Christianity. There's there's no creed yet. Yeah. There's no, definitely not a systematic theology textbook yet. So there's still a lot of uh, voices that are sort of against each other. And there's a lot of controversy about really key theological things. So, uh, you know, the, the people that we've come to recognize as fathers are also combating all kinds of, of heresies, all kinds of ideas. And a lot of what they're writing is aimed at is that. Yeah. And so it's important to, I think, to understand that context, too. And the one of the amazing things about that is there's really nothing new under the sun. Uh, once, absolutely. <laughs> like once you, you know, at first you yeah. hear something that people were believing back then. You're like, wow, that's crazy. That's so outlandish. Who could ever believe that? But then, again, you allow it to kind of interrogate you a little bit mm -hmm. and your church. And then you start to think, oh, actually, I do I kind of know people who sort of talk like that. Yeah. I, I've heard that on Christian radio. I've yeah. read that in a yeah. book before. This is a recycled sin. Yeah. You, like the heresies the never really go yeah. away. Yeah. So the relevancy, like once you start to get into it, you see like how incredibly relevant yeah. they are still today. Well, I'd like to get into talking a little bit about some of the material from the church fathers, some of their uh, quotes. But before we do, I want to attempt to uh, answer a little bit more fully your question about why uh, 
the why question you asked, Carrie, about why we think differently about salvation in some respects than the early church fathers uh, did. And, and I think, you know, we mentioned the early church fathers lived under uh, Roman rule in, in an empire that was uh, not always friendly, to say the least, to them. Uh, another thing is, is that uh, our concept of sin today as especially, I would say, in the evangelical church, is very much focused on the individual. And if if sin is an individual thing and exclusively an individual dynamic, that it's it, the locus of sin, the, the location of sin is in the individual human being and nowhere else, then salvation must be uh, located exclusively between the individual and God. Uh, but when we look at the Bible, uh, we see that God does not only critique the sinfulness of individuals, right? I mean, we see God critiquing uh, family sin. Uh, the, he, God critiques uh, cities uh, for their sinfulness. God critiques tribes and nations. God critiques empires for their sin. And we see this to be true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I've come to realize is that collective identity sin is a thing in the Bible. And if we don't recognize collective identity sin as an actual theological category, it, it actually kind of brackets out you know, a salvation that might have something to say about collective identity mm -hmm. sin or collective identity conflict. And, and I think the, uh, the Enlightenment has had a huge impact on the way we think and do theology. The Enlightenment, of course, is famous for, you know, the saying, uh, I think, therefore I am, right? You know, that there's this sense of individuality and individual empowerment and uh, individual pursuits uh, and the collective becomes sort of the bad guy that we're trying to always get away from. And, you know, the Bible is much more complex and nuanced than that. And and this is where the text in Ephesians 2 has so much to say, I believe. Um, so I just wanted to offer that as a, a little bit more foundation about why perhaps this text has been you know, bracketed out of theological conversations concerning the the significance of the atonement of Christ or the cross. Uh, did you want to add anything to that, Kristen? Yeah, I think the short answer, which perhaps listeners of this podcast would not be surprised by, is our culture. Mm. Our culture makes it hard for us to know what to do with a passage like this. Yeah, Our culture has kind of taught us in advance what theology is. And we come to scripture with a certain lens on what we we already know what it says. Mm. And so we end up kind of creating uh, what I call a canon within the canon. So we end up having texts that we see as being really, really important about the atonement or really, really important about marriage or or whatever it might be, because those are the texts that speak the most directly to our culture or that we find the most appealing. Mm -hmm. And we have this tendency to kind of ignore or minimize other texts uh, within the canon. So we kind of, you know, we create a situation where we, we end up preaching a lot on certain texts and writing a lot on certain ones 
and then sometimes missing the full significance of other ones and how those other ones help us to create a broader picture. So, you know, you could get into the nitty gritty of like the (laughs) historical reasons, you know, and more say way more about the Enlightenment if you wanted to. But again, what's great about the church fathers is they're authoritative for us in a certain way, but they they also have a different culture and a different context. And so they're able to to pull out different things and bring them to our eyes. So one of the the fascinating things that I I read some of the the things that you guys are working on and when I read this this passage it's clearly talking about this reconciliation of the Gentiles and the Jews. And so I think it's tempting for us to go, oh well that was just kind of the thing that they were dealing with. We can't really extrapolate things from that. Right. But one of the things I found fascinating, I think, Kristen, you were writing specifically on this, is some of these earlier church fathers, they were able to extrapolate. I know one area that you touched on was the issue of slavery. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit, but I think it might be helpful because I think it's tempting to go, well, we all know the Jew-Gentile thing was like a problem then. Um, so, yeah, maybe walk us through a little bit of that. How were they early church fathers extrapolating from that? Yeah. So uh, one thing that I, I want to say about the Jew and Gentile distinction, the word Gentiles means nations. Mm. OK, so this isn't you know, it's we can sometimes kind of think about like, some Greek looking people way back when, (laughs) and that's Gentile. Right. But if you look like what the word actually means in scripture is nations. Mm. That's non-Jewish nations in particular. Non-Jewish nations. Right. 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 But it it has this connotation of people group. Right. Almost as if, yeah, it's like 5,000 people there and 5,000 there. And it's those guys. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So in that sense, it it still speaks to all of us. I mean, absolutely. Who, most of us are non from non-Jewish nations. Right. And, and right. I, I would just throw in this, this one thought here is we cannot limit this text to being relevant only to Jews and Gentiles because the Bible itself speaks of reconciliation uh, beyond Jews and Gentiles. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 1.10, it says, uh, as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him. And in Colossians 1 and 2, there are verses there about the reconciling of all things. And and so uh, the the truth about the reconciling power of the cross and resurrection of Christ is far broader than, than we sometimes, uh, or maybe oftentimes, uh, limit it to yeah. by exclusively applying it to individuals being reconciled to God. Right. So the text itself, without even going to the early church, uh, suggests that reconciliation is clearly more than just uh, Jews and Gentiles or clearly more just individuals to God. It can represent and speak to any collective identity groups in conflict with one another inside of the family of God. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with 
locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. Yeah, so uh, slavery in the early church. So one of the really interesting things that we discovered is from these three guys called the Cappadocian fathers. They were, two of them were brothers and the other guy, they were, three of them were best friends. They did a lot to help solidify the doctrine of the early church, to help us understand the Trinity, highly, highly influential. Two of them were supporters of slavery were at least tolerant of it. Mm -hmm. One of them was a staunch, as staunch an abolitionist, if you could even use that word, that you could find in the early church. Perhaps the only person in the early church who had such a a hard stance on slavery is wrong Mm. in every circumstance. Slavery is an affront to God. And who was that, Kristen? (laughs) That was my very good friend, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, His comrades in the Cappadocians were Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil the Great. They lived in Cappadocia, which would be in modern-day Turkey in the 300s AD, so pretty early on. So for me, it was a really uh, interesting question. Why did Gregory take a different stance than his really, really good friends? And why, you know, how was he willing to go against the whole crowd on this? Mm -hmm. On something that today we would say, well, yeah, God doesn't like slavery, right? But back then, and for a lot of human history, this was a contested thing. And most people thought it was at least okay. So if you look at the three Cappadocians, you've got Basil who says, well, you know, it's okay. I guess it's just, it's kind of the way things are, you know, so, and we've got to obey authority. So yeah. Then you've got Gregory of Nazianzus who says, well, I don't think God intended it this way, but you know, because we live in a fallen world, we kind of got to give and take a little Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like that. Right. And again, I've heard people say this today about right. things that we debate right. and talk about today. Nothing new under the sun. No, right. no yeah. yeah we sweep a lot of things under, well, it's a fallen world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, ah, well, you know, we, we got to kind of maintain the status quo. Yeah. There's that one, too. Mm-hmm. So then Gregory of Nyssa comes in just, I mean, a firebrand, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he is so staunchly against slavery. Uh, just to read you a couple of, a couple of different quotes he, he talks about Ephesians 2, and he talks about how we are one new humanity in Christ, that Christ has completely gotten rid of the old ways of us understanding our identity, and especially the ways of understanding our identity that would degrade or take away from the image of God, that would seem to say the image of God is not the same in some people as it is in other people. So for Gregory... This is like, you know, you are, you're defying God by holding slaves. You are, so let me see if I can find a good, he says that slavery is the greatest expression of pride because the slaveholder turns God's property into his own property 
And he actually oversteps his own nature by thinking that he's different, that he's somehow better than someone else, right? And he says, let's see here, that when you bring someone under the yoke of slavery, you defy and fight against the divine decree, hmm. right? And I, there's an Easter sermon that Gregory preached that we have written down that like blew my mind to try to think about him being in a slaveholding culture, yeah. being the only one who took the, the stance that he took. And he just rails against slavery. He says, for what price? Tell me, what did you find that was worth as much as the human nature? How many obols or how many pieces of gold did you think were equal to the likeness of God? What could you buy the likeness of God for? Wow. God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. If he is in the likeness of God and has been given dominion over the whole earth, who could be his buyer? Who could be his seller? To God alone belongs this power, or rather not even to God himself, he says, for his gracious gifts are irrevocable. Wow. Not even God himself would make humans slaves. Since he himself, when, he, when we had been enslaved to sin, brought us back to freedom. So if God doesn't make slaves, who is he that sets his own power above God's? Wow. Now imagine like, I ima <laughs> imagine like a full cathedral wow. full of slaveholders. And yeah. Gregory's like going at them, right? He says, you masters have heard me. Wow. Listen to what I'm saying. Do not slander me to your slaves as praising the day with false rhetoric. So in other words, don't make me look like a fool, right? Mm -hmm. He says, take away the pain from oppressed souls as the Lord takes the deadness from bodies. Transform their dishonor into honor, their oppression into joy, their fear of speaking into openness. Bring out the bowed down from their corner as if from their graves and let the beauty of the Easter feast blossom like a flower upon everyone. Mm -hmm. So he, in his Easter sermon, right? Wow. Easter Sunday is like, let them go. Yeah. I mean, pretty intense. Uh, and so this raises a good question for us, right? Because here you've got three actually really, really close friends who have really, really different views. They're reading the same Bible. They're talking with each other all the time. Really, they're, they're comrades in many ways in the fight for uh, sound doctrine. Mm -hmm. And yet you've got really, really different views. So it, I think that it, it gives us cause to, to stop and, and ask, you know, well, how am I interpreting? Yeah. What, like, am I, am I as right as I think I am? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That reminds me actually of uh, a book I'm currently reading by Mark Knoll, uh, concerning, uh, the civil war and the theological crisis that occurred uh, during the Civil War, where there were strong positions taken based upon Scripture, <laughs> pro-slavery and anti-slavery, and it, it was a real crisis. Uh, so uh, I have yet to read anything in Mark Knoll's book, however, that pointed back to Gregory of Nyssa. And I think <laughs> this is a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, resource for us. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for Gregory of Nyssa, there was no question that Scripture spoke directly to, to the social issues of his day. 
And there was no question that Christians needed to be doing something radically different from the society around them. Kristen, you have also uh, discovered among uh, the church fathers relative to the atonement of Christ that the, the cross and the resurrection, the atonement of Christ deals with the cosmic powers. Mm. Yeah. And uh, even beyond the horizontal social uh, uh, dimension of human life, the cross deals with the powers. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and, and, uh, and, and begin by just focusing on a couple of scriptures which tell us about the cosmic powers and then also uh, pointing to uh, what some of the church fathers have, uh, have said about that. Yeah, so, so Ephesians talks a lot about the cosmic powers, right? So that immediately, if we're wanting to interpret Ephesians 2, we all, if you're any student of the Bible, right, look to the context. Mm -hmm. What's going on in the rest of Ephesians? So we see uh, a few places right before this. Let's see. It says that Christ was seated at his right hand in heavenly places. This would be in, let's see here, 120. In 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So uh, this right here is talking about rulers and authorities and powers. And if you look in the rest of the book, this is referring to cosmic powers, right? Yeah, so the powers in, of the air. Right. In, in Ephesians 6, 12, I mean, that's when I hear about cosmic powers or demonic powers. I always think Ephesians chapter 6, uh, which talks about uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Right. And so what you're saying is that these words, rulers and authorities, for the, the Greek there for rulers and authorities referring to the cosmic dark powers, it's the same word here in Ephesians 1.21 when it says far above all rule and authority. Right. And, you know, also in Ephesians 3.10, this has become one of my favorite verses in Scripture, being involved with this project. Yeah, this is cool. Tell us about this. Yeah, so uh, in 3.10, it, it refers to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So if we were wondering, what does he mean by rulers and authorities? We know, right? Mm -hmm. This is, we're talking about spiritual entities. Yes, yeah, spiritual beings. Right. Right. Which in uh, in the Bible and in ancient thought were, would be associated with political entities, would be associated with kings and kingdoms and empires. So there there's a close link, even if they're not exactly the same thing. Here, Paul is talking specifically about those that are in the heavenly places, right? And okay, so so let me just back up here because I think this is an important point. So when you say they're associated with political entities, um, are you suggesting that there are demonic powers that are connected to particular political or geographic realms uh, in the world? Is there is there a biblical basis for thinking this, Kristen? <laughs> there, there's a lot of biblical basis. The church fathers also heavily emphasized this in their interpretation of Ephesians 2. Uh, biblically speaking, we see tons of this in the Old Testament. So the most 
explicit example would be in Daniel, where the archangel, right, Michael comes to Daniel and says, you know, sorry, I was held up because I was doing battle with the prince of Persia, right? And some people try to say that that's a human entity, but this is an angel we're talking about, right? And Michael says, I am the prince of your people, right? He, he's named as the prince of Israel. So the prince in that case appears to be an angel, right? So then prince of Persia, and he also makes reference to the prince of Greece. These would be angelic or demonic entities that are associated with nations and with territories. We can also see this happening in Deuteronomy 32, where it says that God allotted the nations to the sons of God, but Jacob he chose for his own, right? Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, I believe. Yeah, I believe so. Thank you. And then uh, Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 84, which talks about the divine counsel. It says that the Lord takes his seat among the gods, and it describes, you know, God, big G, with the gods of the nations, little g's. Mm -hmm. And he's condemning them in that psalm for their rebellion. Uh, yeah, it is Psalm, psalm 80. Oh, no, Psalm, psalm 82. Psalm 82. Sorry, I'm so bad with my numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it says God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. Right. So uh, there's a lot of biblical basis for this. And in the New Testament, you know, you also see Jesus directly confronting demonic powers. And you see this happening in Acts, too, with, with regional spirits and also with, with spirits that are afflicting individuals. Yeah, just a little footnote here. Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, really unpacks this in a accessible but also uh, pretty scholarly uh, way. So we, we would recommend that uh, book for people interested in that line of thinking. Yeah. So keep going, Kristen, back to Ephesians. Yeah. So uh, this verse, 310, I just love. In the ESV, it reads, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, and so just to set up Ephesians 3 a little bit, Paul here is talking about the mystery of the gospel right after our passage in Ephesians 2. And he's saying, like, just in case you don't know, like, the reason that I'm telling you this and that I've gone through so much in terms of persecution and everything else is because of this. This is the mystery of the gospel, right? And, and he, he couldn't have made it, you know, he couldn't make it more plain. In verse 6, 3, 6, the, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the nations, all the nations are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So for Paul, you know, I, again, asking the question, for Paul, Ephesians 2 is the gospel. It's the mystery of the gospel, the reason that he's in chains, the reason that he's going through everything that he's going through. And he's saying, you know, this is why I'm doing it, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And I love this word manifold in the ESB because in Greek, it has this meaning, literally multicolored, hmm. diverse, intricate, multiformed. That's beautiful. Rainbow colored, right? So in the context of thinking about the nations, uh, this makes sense. The church fathers talked about Ephesians 2 and said, 
This is about God bringing his glory, his image back to himself. So God's glory is displayed in each of the nations in a unique and precious way. Acts 17 talks a little bit about this too. And in the church, God, in bringing the nations in, in peace, is bringing, is creating a full display of his glory. Paul would say of his multicolored, diverse wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're on a stage in a sense, right? We are on a stage. And we're, we're proclaiming not only to people on earth, but we're, we're proclaiming to the rulers and authorities, those dark forces out there who are opposed to the kingdom of uh, Christ, that Jesus, although he was shamed and humiliated through the cross, rose in victory over sin and death and hell and all those wicked powers. That's right. And, you know, it's kind of, it's God is saying, like, you powers think you own the nations, mm. Mm. but I am the God of the nations. Amen. And furthermore, I mean, you keep the nations in disorder and chaos. You keep them fighting against each other. You keep them bound to sin and death and and the cycles of death and violence. But look what I'm doing. I'm doing a new thing. I've created a new humanity with all of that glory now in peace and harmony in the kingdom of God. And the church right now, the church militant, right? The church right now, we're, we don't yet see everything subjected to him. Like it says, we're not at, at the end of all things, but right now we're supposed to be a display of that to the rulers and authorities. Us living in, in unity and diversity, living together peacefully, loving one another in our diversity, celebrating one another's diversity, glorifying each other, outdoing one another and showing honor to each other is a display to demonic powers man that's awesome and that's it's a awesome. it's a sign to also to those around us of what's to come and it's a sign it's a display of who god is okay i'm convinced yeah. i love like, this I feel like we'll just this do an altar great. call and call it a day like <laughs> that was beautiful yeah but you've also uh done the research to show how some of the church fathers actually made a big deal about this, yes. right? So can you share with us some of what has been written by them? Yeah. So there's, first of all, just to say, you know, we, we've talked in terms of vertical and then of horizontal, yes. right? Yes. Two-dimensional, if you will. Two-dimensional. Well, one could say three-dimensional, but. Right. It, so but, yeah. we've got these kind of straight lines that we, I think, as yeah, Westerners up and down really and back love. And, you know, right. horizontal. Yeah. Nice. We right. love a good graph. Yeah, yes. right. Some good 90-degree angles. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and when we get to the Church Fathers, you kind of see all that is like it's bigger than that. It's yeah. bigger than that. Yeah. It's for them. It's cosmic. Mm. For them, uh, one of my uh, church history professors described it this way: the incarnation is the decisive moment because the incarnation is the moment when God, you know, it's as if God drops a tiny little bit of yeast, His divinity, into the entire dough of the universe, and once that yeast is in the dough, it can't be undone. Mm. 
what's begun with Christ will be completed, right? It, like it says, like he will finish his work. He will bring it to completion. And, but it impacts everything in all of creation. It undoes the power of death for, for all of humanity, for uh, the animals, the plants, for the planets and the galaxies, right? And we're kind of in the process of watching that yeast permeate all of creation. And, and the, so the church fathers talk about this. Um, Athanasius says that, he says that because the word dwelled in a single human body, the corruption which goes with death has lost its power over all. He says that the whole universe was filled with the knowledge of the Lord. He's quoting the Old Testament, right? That the Lord touched all parts of creation and freed and undeceived them from every deceit. As St. Paul says, having put off from himself the principalities and powers, here we are again, he triumphed on the cross. And there's other parts, um, other places where Athanasius talks about kind of all the different levels that Christ has conquered. So there's this kind of sense, if you want, think of it one way, Christ is up here in heaven and he's kind of entering all the different layers of creation, right? So he, he comes down and he's a God to the people of Israel. Then he becomes a king. He becomes a father. He becomes a brother to us in Christ. He even becomes our child in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then he becomes a criminal. And he becomes a condemned man. He becomes a disgraced man. And he even becomes sin and death for us. He even goes down to hell. And at that moment, his victory is complete because he has infiltrated, he has conquered every single part of creation. And we, of course, hell could not hold him, right? Death could not hold him because he's God. He's got the God life. And so he is able to conquer all of that and to transform all of that. So the answer is yes, reconciliation with God for us. Yes, reconciliation with each other for us but also a profound, a freedom of, for all of creation for us. Man, that is, that is amazing. And, and it makes me think if, if the reconciling work of the cross and resurrection and exaltation of Christ is that big, then it, it, it makes smaller <laughs> the challenge of reconciling groups in co in conflict with one another in the church, it it makes smaller the idea that black and white, you know, can actually worship together and come together and honor one another and and be a, a you know one new humanity, uh, or you know tribal conflict in other parts of the world, and so the the scope of this is. Uh, it's mind bending, isn't it? Yeah. And it's very Christ exalting. <laughs> it's, right. It's, right. It, I mean, this is only possible because of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, without Jesus and who he is, what he's accomplished as revealed in the scriptures, uh, this is our hope. Yeah. So, and this is why for the church fathers, um, like for Gregory of Nazianzus, this unity in the church and infighting in the church and churches that were segregated by class or by race were so appalling. Mm -hmm. 
Because we're actually diminishing the glory of God. We're forsaking the glory that God has given to us. He quotes, you know, Jesus in the high priestly prayer where he says, Father, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them so that they may be one, even as you and I are one. And he says, if that's the case, then for us to tolerate disunity or, or, or treating some as less than or, or being a segregated church, he says, it's our own wickedness that is to blame and our complete disrespect for the Trinity. Horrible things are these. They're beyond horrible. There's nothing worse than peace in the church put to flight. The church stripped of her beauty her ancient glory destroyed. Wow. Wow. That's very it convicting. Was, it, it is convicting. It was serious. Yeah. It was yeah. like, it was like, it's as if to say that, you know, we don't really believe in him. Yeah. We don't really belong to him. So this truth about the doctrine of the atonement relative to the unity of the church, the cross-cultural, multi-ethnic unity of the church, it's not a secondary doctrine for the early church fathers that you've quoted. Yeah, in fact, Nazianzus says, you know, he says Christ is given two names in the New Testament. Love, right, where it says God is love and peace. Yeah, he is our he peace is here our peace. in Ephesians 2. Right? So he says, you know, how can we, if we're the disciples of love, hate one another? Yeah. If we belong to peace, how can we be at war with one another? And he actually, he actually says, how could we not reach out and embrace one another and maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which is the true meaning, the sum and substance, if you will, of all the law and the prophets? Well, and that's, I think, what is tempting is to go, well, I'm not like at war with them, but I could be apathetic towards them. But that's not what he's saying. There's an active love towards that we're reaching for, because I think that's the temptation you know, just to be apathetic towards one another. Yeah. Just, and we're not just not going to bother each other. Yeah. And he, you know, he points to the example of Christ. He says, Christ emptied himself and took a servant's form for us. You know, there was nothing that he was not willing to do to reconcile us. So what is wrong with us? Yeah. You know, how yeah. can we not embrace one another? How right. can we not do what he did if we really, if we're really his disciples? Yeah. Well, this has been a, rich conversation. And um, I am uh, humbled and grateful to uh, have participated in this conversation. Uh, would you like to uh, wrap things up, uh, Kristen? Or is, are there any final comments that you want to share with us before we sign off? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I hope that people are more interested in the early church after after looking at this. And I also hope that I hope that we are ready to to try to take seriously Ephesians two, yeah. eleven through twenty two, the the part that we that we've kind of bracketed off and ignored. And I think you know it's easy to talk about it, but it's really really hard to put boots on the ground with this. It is. It yeah. becomes really hard when we start thinking about our communities and and to understand one of the things the church fathers are pointing out that to me is so convicting and so hard to think about is. Our communities are a reflection of what we really believe. Mm. Yeah. So when we, uh, you know, tolerate Sunday morning being the most segregated hour, when we when we tolerate 
the disunity, the strife, the division within our churches, we are we are saying what our values really are. Mm -hmm. Right. When we make a church that is catering only to a certain type of person, we're saying what we really believe. And it's really, really hard. It it takes a miracle, actually. It takes a revelation of this truth deep in your heart. It takes more than just talking about it. And it takes a willingness to say, Lord, I, I want to obey you in this. We want to obey you in this. We want to press in to the glory of your kingdom. We want to know more about who you are. And we can't know that unless we're living this out, yeah. unless we're, we're, we're following through. And to say, Lord, we need you. Come, Holy Spirit, come (laughs) and help us, right? That's the part. It's so easy to talk about it and be so, you know, to feel elated by these things. But on the ground, it's going to be messy. It's going to be really hard. It's going to require ongoing repentance and change. But it's going to be so, so worth it for us to be able to live and experience what this is about. The, for us to be able to live and experience the glory that the Father gave to Christ. So worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure we, you know, Kristen Werner, I really appreciate the all the blood, sweat, and tears you guys have put into asking questions, ultimately, you know, and, and doing some really hard reading and processing. And um, we will, I know several books have been referenced, some scriptures have been referenced. We'll make sure and put all that in the show notes. So you can look there. We'll have links to all of that. So. All right. Well, thank you listeners for joining us today for doing theology and thinking mission. Until next time, uh, God bless you. Take care. (laughs) 